Chapter 2, Part 1 of U.S. Marine Operations in Korea, 1950-1953, Volume 2, The Inchon Seoul Operation, by Lynn Montross and Nicholas Canzona. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Minutemen of 1950 on 18 July 1950, it was D-59 for the Marine Reservists who would hit the beaches at Incheon. These young civilians were doubtless more interested in Major League Baseball standings at the moment than in hydrographic conditions at the Korean seaport they would assault within two months. Yet the proposed amphibious operation moved a long step closer to reality on the 18th when Major General Oliver P. Smith left Washington under orders to assume command of the 1st Marine Division at Camp Pendleton, California. A graduate of the University of California in 1916, General Smith had been commissioned a Marine Second Lieutenant at the age of 24 in the First World War. After serving in Guam during that conflict, he saw duty at sea and in Haiti during the early 1920s, followed by studies at the Army Infantry School, Fort Benning, Georgia, and duty as an instructor in the Marine Corps schools at Quantico. In Paris, while attached administratively to the office of the U.S. Naval Attaché, he took the full two-year course at the École Supérieure de Guerre and afterwards he was an instructor for three more years at the Marine Corps schools. He had an extensive experience of hard-fought amphibious operations during World War II as a regimental commander in the Tallassee, New Britain landing, as ADC of the 1st Marine Division at Peleliu, and as Deputy Chief of Staff of the U.S. 10th Army on Okinawa. Returning with the rank of Brigadier, he became Commandant of the Marine Corps schools, and after putting up a second star, the tall, slender, white-haired general served as assistant commandant at Marine Corps headquarters in Washington. At the outbreak of the Korean conflict, Major General Graves B. Erskine had commanded the 1st Marine Division. Following his assignment to a secret State Department mission in Southeast Asia, General Smith was named as his relief. The division had meanwhile been reduced to 3,386 officers and men as compared to a strength of 7,789 on 30 June 1950. It had been stripped of its principal operating elements to build up the 1st Provisional Marine Brigade, which numbered about 5,000 officers and men when it sailed from San Diego to the Far East on 14 July under the command of Brigadier General Edward A. Craig. At El Toro, the nearby Marine Corps Air Station, it was the same story. The 1st Marine Aircraft Wing, with a total strength of 4,004 officers and men on 30 June, provided most of the 1,548 officers and men of Marine Aircraft Group 33, the air component of the brigade, commanded by Brigadier General Thomas J. Cushman, who was also Deputy Brigade Commander. Expansion to Full Peace Strength General Smith had known before his arrival at Pendleton that his first task would be the building up of the 1st Marine Division to full peace strength. As early as 12 July, a dispatch from CNO had warned Sinkpack Fleet that this expansion would take place, including the elements of the brigade. And on 15 July, General Shepard directed Brigadier General Harry B. Liversedge, Temporary CG 1st Marine Division, to extend the workday and work week while intensifying training and making preparations to expand. 
The 15th was also the date of General MacArthur's second request for a war-strength Marine Division with its own heir for employment in his proposed Incheon amphibious assault. General Shepard advised CMC that same day as to the composition of cadres to facilitate the rapid expansion of the 1st Marine Division. Already it was becoming apparent that this buildup would allow little time for training. Fortunate it was, therefore, that the Division and the 1st Marine Aircraft Wing had participated in an intensive training program during recent months. Following are the principal exercises. October 1949. Airlift field exercise involving movement of a reinforced battalion and air command to San Nicolas Island, California. One Marine Aircraft Group, Carrier embarked for participation in Operation Mickey with 6th Army in Hawaii. November 1949. Field exercise involving a reinforced regiment and supporting aircraft. December 1949. Combined field exercise, a simulated amphibious assault extending over a period of seven days, involving all principal elements of the division and wing. January 1950. Participation by elements of division in Operation Mikowex 50, stressing the use of the transport submarine and helicopter in amphibious operations. February 1950. Field exercise involving a reinforced regiment with supporting air. March 1950. Land plane and seaplane airlift exercise involving seizure of San Nicolas Island by a reinforced battalion and a Marine Air Command. May 1950. Participation by a majority of division and wing elements in Demon 3, an amphibious demonstration for students of Command and General Staff College, Fort Leavenworth. Participation by wing in two-week major advanced base field exercise with intensive training and close support. June 1950. Continuation of training in lesser air-ground problems field exercises, and command post exercises. Counterparts of nearly all of these exercises might have been found in the training program for the 2nd Marine Division and 2nd Marine Aircraft Wing on the North Carolina coast. Operation CAMID at Little Creek, Virginia, was similar to Demon 3. All principal FMF land elements participated in Operation Crossover at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, in the spring of 1950, and a Marine aircraft group was embarked aboard a carrier in the Mediterranean. Other elements of the wing took part in Portrex, an Army-Navy amphibious exercise in the Caribbean, and in Swarmer, an Army Air Force airborne exercise in North Carolina. Units of both the division and the wing were represented in the annual amphibious command post exercise at Lejeune, and throughout the winter and spring a succession of smaller ground, air, and air-ground exercises emphasized close support and amphibious landings. Posts and stations were, meanwhile, conducting annual weapons qualification firing tests and individual training as required by USMC General Order No. 10. This program was designed to maintain the basic military proficiency of men not serving with the Fleet Marine Force. It is significant, however, that a large portion of them had reported to such duty directly from FMF units in accordance with the rotation policy. The program for the organized reserve included both armory and active duty summer training. Air and ground units of reservists were adopted during their summer training by similar units of the Fleet Marine Force, 
which supervised the exercises and provided instructors. By the summer of 1950, a large proportion of the reservists had progressed beyond basic training into advanced individual and unit training so that they could be classified as nearly combat ready at the time of the 1st Marine Division expansion. Mobilization of Marine Corps Reserve Shortcomings in quantity rather than quality of Marine personnel made expansion a problem on 19 July 1950, when General MacArthur sent his third request to the Pentagon for a Marine division with appropriate air. Again, the Joint Chiefs referred the matter to General Cates, who was prepared with two plans worked out in detail by his staff, Plan Able, providing third rifle companies and replacements for the brigade, and Plan Baker, designed to bring the 1st Marine Division up to full war strength by calling reservists to active duty. These plans were based on the personnel statistics of 30 June 1950. The grand total of 74,279 Marines on active duty at that time, 97% of authorized strength, was distributed as follows. Operating forces, engaged directly in carrying out assigned missions and tasks, 40,364. Supporting establishment, comprising trained administrative and supply personnel, 24,552. Special assignment, including all personnel serving with organizations outside the regular establishment, 3,871. Non-available, made up of personnel hospitalized, confined, or en route, 5,492. Total, 74,279. A breakdown of the operating forces reveals that the Fleet Marine Force numbered 27,703 men, the security detachments included 11,087, and 1,574 Marines were afloat. Of the 11,853 in FMF pack, 7,779 were in the 1st Marine Division and 3,733 in the 1st Marine Aircraft Wing. The 15,803 Marines in FMF Lant included 8,973 in the 2nd Marine Division and 5,297 in the 2nd Marine Aircraft Wing. These figures make it evident that the 1st Marine Division could not be brought up to war strength of about 25,000 troops without drawing upon the 33,527, 77% of authorized strength, and the ground forces or the organized reserve, and the 6,341, 94% of authorized strength, in the aviation forces. The ground personnel were distributed among these units. 21 infantry battalions, 16 rifle companies, 7 105mm howitzer battalions, 5 155mm howitzer battalions, 1 155mm gun battalion, 2 40mm gun batteries, 2 tank battalions, 3 amphibian tractor battalions, 1 amphibian truck company, one signal company, supplementary, six signal companies, one engineer battalion, 15 women's reserve platoons. Aviation units consisted of 30 Marine Fighter Squadrons, VMF, and 12 Marine Ground Control Intercept Squadrons, MGCI. The organized reserve was exceeded as a reservoir of potential manpower by the Volunteer Marine Corps Reserve, 
which had a total of 90,044 men and women on 30 June 1950. This total included 2,267 volunteer reservists on continuous active duty with the regular establishment, about 5,000 training in some 200 volunteer training units, and 1,316 in the Fleet Reserve. Altogether, the strength of all Marine Reserve components, less volunteer reservists on active duty, amounted to a total of 128,959, or nearly double the number of Marines in the regular establishment. Behind every Marine regular, figuratively speaking, stood two reservists who were ready to step forward and fill the gaps in the ranks. Thus it was scarcely far-fetched when some inspired public information officer coined the phrase, Minutemen of 1950, for these recent civilians who made it possible for the 1st Marine Division to hit the beaches at Incheon. Events moved swiftly on 19 July. Only a few hours after the receipt of Sink Fee's third request, the mobilization of the Marine Corps Reserve was authorized by President Truman with the sanction of Congress. Headquarters Marine Corps, on the hill overlooking the Pentagon, was ablaze with lights that summer night, and decisions were made which enabled four important steps to be taken next day. 1. A warning to reserve district directors that the organized reserve would soon be ordered to active duty. 2. Notification to commanding generals to expect some 21,000 organized reservists shortly at Marine Barracks Camp Pendleton and about 5,800 at Marine Barracks Camp Lejeune. 3. Orders issued by CMC with the approval of CNO to discontinue the practice of discharging reservists at their own request. 4. The first reservists, 22 units with a total strength of 4,830 men, ordered to active duty with a delay of 10 days. The Joint Chiefs of Staff were still not convinced that a Marine force could be embarked to meet General MacArthur's deadline of 10 September without stripping FMF Lant units to a dangerous extent. On the advice of Admiral Sherman, they informed Sink Fee on 20 July that a Marine division could not be sent before November or even December. General Shepard had a great deal to do with shaping the ultimate decision. On the 20th, when CNO conferred with Admiral Radford on the question of a Marine division, the commander of the Pacific Fleet in his turn asked the opinion of the Marine general. General Shepard replied that a Marine amphibious striking force could be raised for the proposed Inchon landing without seriously weakening the Fleet Marine force as a whole. This striking force, he predicted, would prove to be the key of achievement of a timely and economical decision for our arms. The Marine General's statement was one of the main factors in causing the Joint Chiefs to advise MacArthur on the 22nd that they were reconsidering their stand. During the next 48 hours, as dispatches sped back and forth across the Pacific, a compromise was reached. Sink Fee was promised his Marine Division in time for his target date, but it was to be a Division minus one RCT. In other words, the infantry regiment of the brigade would be supplemented by another RCT and supporting troops with appropriate Marine air. But the Joint Chiefs were adamant in their decision that MacArthur must wait until autumn or even winter for his third RCT. These preliminaries cleared the way so that General MacArthur's request was finally approved by JCS on 25 July, 
the day when General Smith took over command of the 1st Marine Division. The Marine Corps was directed to build the division, less one RCT, up to full war strength, and a date of departure of 10 to 15 August for the Far East was set. A 50% reduction in Marine security forces within the continental limits of the United States was authorized by CNO on that same date. This meant that an additional 3,630 regulars would be enabled to report for service with the 1st Marine Division. On the morning of the 26th, a courier from Washington arrived at Camp Pendleton with a communication for General Smith indicating that the expanded 1st Marine Division would be composed of four types of personnel. 1. Brigade units to be combined with the division upon arrival in the Far East. 2. Units of the 2nd Marine Division to be ordered to Camp Pendleton to augment elements of the 1st. 3. Regular personnel to be called in from posts and stations. And 4. Final deficiencies to be filled by men from the Marine Corps Reserve who met minimum combat experience requirements. Congress passed legislation on 27 July authorizing the President to extend for one year all enlistments in the armed forces, both regular and reserve, which were due to expire before 9 July 1951. This gave the assurance of a stable body of troops. On the 31st, with the 1st Reservists arriving at Camp Pendleton and the 1st Contingents leaving Camp Lejeune for the West Coast, the Joint Chiefs of Staff directed CNO to expand the 2nd Marine Division to war strength while increasing the number of Marine Tactical Air Squadrons from 16 to 18. Obviously, the 1st and 2nd Divisions could not be built up simultaneously without serious delays, and priority must be given to the 1st. It was equally obvious, moreover, that this expansion must be largely accomplished during the first week of August if the troops were to be made ready for embarkation between the 10th and the 15th. The Influx at Camp Pendleton The first buildup of troops to reach Camp Pendleton were three organized reserve units which arrived on 31 July, the 13th Infantry Company of Los Angeles and the 12th Amphibian Tractor Company of San Francisco and the 3rd Engineer Company of Phoenix, Arizona. This was the beginning of an inundation which kept the camp keyed to a 24-hour day and a 7-day week. A torrent of troops poured into the vast military reservation by bus, train, and plane at all hours of the day and night. Confusion seemed to reign from the tawny California hills to the blue Pacific, and yet this seeming chaos was under the control of veteran officers and NCOs who had mounted out before. Accommodations for the newcomers were not deluxe, but men were being processed, assigned, fed, and equipped as rapidly as they arrived. The tramp of feet could be heard all night long as details of troops drew clothing and equipment or reported for medical examinations. A total of 13,703 Marines reached Camp Pendleton during this busy week. Counting the personnel already on hand, troops of four categories were represented. Officers and men remaining in 1st Marine Division at Camp Pendleton after dispatch of the brigade, 3,459. Officers and men reporting from posts and stations up to 4 August, 3,630. Officers and men reporting from the 2nd Marine Division from 3 to 6 August, 7,182. 
Officers and men selected as combat ready out of the total of about 10,000 reservists reporting by 7 August, 2,891. Total, 17,162. The expansion took place in two phases. First, of course, came the bringing of the 1st Marine Division, less 1 RCT, up to war strength, including augmentation personnel and supplies for the units of the brigade. Next, the organization of a 3rd Reinforced Infantry Regiment, the 7th Marines, was directed by a letter from CMC to CG 1st Marine Division on 4 August. Headquarters Marine Corps naturally foresaw the necessity for replacement and rotation troops. The importance of the reserve in this long-range expansion program may be seen by glancing ahead at the statistics of the next few months. Units of these recent civilians continued to report at such a rate that by 11 September 1950, the organized reserve, ground, had in effect ceased to exist. In other words, all acceptable personnel had already reported for active duty, and the total of 33,528 officers and men represented a 90.02 percentage of availability. The record of the Volunteer Reserve proved to be equally good after it was ordered to active duty on 15 August 1950. During the next seven and a half months, down to 31 March 1951, the Volunteer Reserve furnished 51,942 of the 84,821 reservists on active duty. As to the quality of these troops, about 99% of the officers and 77.5% of the enlisted were veterans of World War II. Many of the first reservists to report to Camp Pendleton made unusual sacrifices. Although they had the privilege of being discharged at their own request as late as 18 July 1950, the unexpectedness of the Korean conflict worked hardships in some instances. Reservists with several dependents or just establishing themselves in a business or profession had to settle their affairs hurriedly. There was little applause when the Minutemen of 1950 departed from home communities which were on a basis of business and pleasure as usual. The Korean conflict was still regarded as a police action which would be ended shortly. Nobody dreamed that within its first year it would become the fourth largest military effort of our nation's history. The Marine Corps was as lenient as could reasonably be expected when it came to granting delays and deferments. On 1 August, a board of eight officers at Marine Corps headquarters initiated daily meetings to consider such requests emanating from the various reserve districts. Two weeks later, the Commandant gave reserve district directors the authority to grant delays for periods up to six months after judging each case on its individual merits. But even after every concession had been made that could be reconciled with the national interest, it was a wrench for hundreds of reservists to make the sudden plunge from civil into military life. There were instances of men seeking deferment by using political influence or pleading physical disability. But such cases were rare as compared to the great majority who reported promptly and declared themselves combat ready. In the selection of reservists for the division, two categories were recognized, combat ready and non-combat ready. The first applied to men whose records proved that they had been members of the organized reserve for two years and had attended one summer camp and 72 drills, or two summer camps and 32 drills. 
Veterans of more than 90 days service in the Marine Corps also qualified. All other reservists were classified as non-combat ready. When lost or incomplete records complicated the equation, a reservist's own opinion could not be accepted as proof of his fitness for combat. The rules had to be made because so many men were found to have more spunk than training. Officers of a reservist unit were questioned before a decision was reached, and any men feeling the need for further training could be removed without prejudice from immediate consideration for combat. Standards were so strictly observed that only about half of the reservists qualified as being combat ready. This group broke down into the 15% accepted for the 1st Marine Division and the 35% assigned to posts and stations to relieve regulars who joined the division. The remaining 50% consisted of men placed in the non-combat ready or recruit class. The emergency found the organized aviation reserve with 30 VMF and 12 GCI squadrons generally up to peacetime strength. Of the 1,588 officers, about 95% were combat experienced, and only about 10% of the enlisted men stood in need of basic training. It was a comparatively simple task, therefore, to comply with the order of 23 July calling for six VMF and three GCI squadrons to report to El Toro. Their mission was to build up to war strength the units of the 1st Maw, which had been stripped to mount out MAG-33. On 3 August, the remaining nine GCI squadrons of the Organized Aviation Reserve were ordered to El Toro. By this time, the buildup was so well in hand that Major General Field Harris, commanding the 1st Marine Aircraft Wing, conferred with General Smith about aviation shipping for the embarkation. The veteran Marine pilot, a native of Kentucky, had been commissioned a second lieutenant in 1917 after graduating from the U.S. Naval Academy. Three years of service with Marine ground forces in Cuba and the Philippines were followed by headquarters duty at Washington and flight training at Pensacola. Designated a naval aviator in 1929, he held various Marine air commands before participating as Colonel and Brigadier General in the Guadalcanal, Northern Solomons, and Green Island air operations of World War II. On his return, he was appointed Assistant Commandant, Air, and Director of Aviation. In the autumn of 1946, after Operation Crossroads had given a glimpse into the tactical future, General Shepard, Harris, and Smith were named as a special board to orient the effort of the Marine Corps away from the last war and toward the next. The result was recommendations leading to experiments with rotary wing aircraft as a means of tactical dispersion in amphibious operations against an enemy employing atomic weapons. Thus, the Marine Corps worked out new helicopter combat techniques which were soon to create tactical history with a brigade and division in Korea. End of Chapter 2, Part 1 Read by Aaron Bennett